Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, everyone. It's January 12th, 2017. Welcome to the Politico Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, and we, well, we have quite a bit to talk about this week. A couple housekeeping items before we get to that. We love hearing from our listeners, so if you have a question you'd like to ask and have us answer, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. That's nerdcast at politico.com. And one other item, if you enjoy the Nerdcast, and we hope you do, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, share our episodes with your friends on Facebook or your favorite social media app. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to business. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 35. That's the number of pages in an explosive, unverified dossier about Donald Trump and Russia that was floating around the intelligence community before BuzzFeed and only BuzzFeed published it earlier this week, kind of blowing some other big news about the president-elect out of the water. 15. That's the number of questions Trump took the next day at a press conference in a circus-like atmosphere, focusing mostly on Russia and yet containing some really new news and serious uh, new information for us to focus on. And then a double number for our final data point, 11 to 10. That's the partisan split on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where Marco Rubio gave Trump's Secretary of State nominee a hard time on Wednesday. In case you uh, couldn't tell from that, Wednesday was a pretty action-packed day. Uh, I think a lot of them are going to be for the next few months, so let's get down to talking about it. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for being here. Senior Politics Editor Charlie Mtessian. Thanks. Uh, Politico's transition specialist, Nancy Cook, glad you're here. Oh, thanks for having me. Chief investigative reporter, Ken Vogel, welcome back. That's me, hi. And White House <laughs> correspondent, Eli Stokels, thank you for coming on. Good to see you. All right, our first data point, 35. That's the number of pages in a document published by BuzzFeed this week that has totally turned the media world and the presidential transition upside down. So here's what happened. CNN reported Tuesday night that Trump's intelligence briefing last week included mention of claims that Russia had blackmail material against him. And BuzzFeed then published the uncorroborated research dossier that a private researcher had prepared on Trump and was circulating you know, around the intelligence community. Uh, had, after making its way into the community's hands. So, Charlie, walk us through what happened here. Well, it's a little complicated, so I'll, tr- I'll try to do the best I, I can. I mean, basically, uh, our, our drama starts on Tuesday when CNN uh, drops this bombshell story that reports that classified documents were presented last week to President Obama and President-elect Trump that included allegations that Uh, Russian operatives were claiming to have very compromising personal and financial information about Trump. Uh, And they reported that these these classified briefings were presented by uh, four of the senior most U.S. intelligence chiefs. And uh, the and but the key here is that CNN only reported on what the briefing was. Then a couple of hours later, BuzzFeed goes up with a story that says that publishes the actual 35-page document that has been circulating, uh, from which some of the most salacious details 
uh, were drawn from. And so the distinction and, and to here, be clear, we don't know what precisely from that document actually made its way into the intelligence briefing and how to, to what extent it was presented on its face versus having, you know, uh, value added judgments made by the intelligence community, either corroborating or uh, second guessing parts of it or omitting parts of it because they were deemed to be not corroborated. Here's another muddy part of it. NBC would later report that uh, Trump was not told about uh, these unverified reports that Russia had compromising information on him. So we're not even certain of whether he was told in that classified briefing about the existence of all of this compromising information. So there's still a great deal uh, obscured here. So let's back up for a second. Now, these rumors about this sort of thing that Russian intelligence had collected blackmail against the president-elect uh, had been floating around for a while. These things have been in the bloodstream. You know, reporters had been had been shopped this kind of information. And Ken, you know, walk us through a little bit. I mean, what what it means that these reports uh, uh, in this dossier that Bu- BuzzFeed published were, you know, unverified or, or uncorroborated because people, in- including yourself, have been trying to track down some of these details for quite some time. Yeah, that's right. We heard about this stuff. Uh, not, not We didn't have the document. Let's, let's be clear about that. We didn't have the document that BuzzFeed posted. At least we didn't at the time that I was working on running some of this stuff down, which was back in September. We did get a tip uh, about some of the, the some of the claims that were made in this document, and we did pursue them. We did run them down, both attempt to run them down, both through our intelligence sources as well as our sources in Trump world. And um, you know, I tweeted to this effect. I mean, some of them seem like outrageous on their face. For instance, th- there is a, a claim about uh, about something that Trump did that uh, might might offend someone who is a germ- germaphobe, of which Trump is. In fact, I tweeted to this effect when when BuzzFeed published the document. I said, you know, we chased that story, but we're skeptical about part of it because Trump is a germaphobe, and the part of it seems a bit too icky for uh, someone like Trump, who is, who is sort of uneasy around uh, around germs. And uh, people just went nuts on me on Twitter, like, you dropped this because you thought that Trump was a germaphobe and wouldn't necessarily engage in this type of behavior? And I said, no. I responded, no. In fact, we did chase this stuff, and we did put a lot of muscle, you know, reporting muscle into trying to run it down, and we couldn't corroborate it. That's why we didn't publish it. And that, I think, to get back to BuzzFeed, is why there are so many questions about about what BuzzFeed did, because they, too, were working unsuccessfully to independently corroborate this stuff. Right. I mean, the you know, we all saw that CNN report come out about this, what you know, what was in this briefing. We assumed that was going to be the big story of the next 24 hours. And little did we know. I mean, Eli, just, you know, kind of talk about the effect of, of the, the, the BuzzFeed report coming out, how that changed the next the next 24 hours. And, you know, even now, you know, a few days later. Well, I mean, there is. There's a lot to say about this, but, you know, we're in this environment now where there is this huge debate over, you know, and and sort of this this blurring of the lines between traditional fact-based reporting and journalism and what we call fake news. And by BuzzFeed going ahead and doing this, I mean, what we saw at Trump's press conference the following day, I mean, when this came out, everybody said, oh, my God, this is right on the eve of his big press conference. What's he going to do? This is right on the eve of the first confirmation hearing for Rex Tillerson, his secretary of state, who, you know, the biggest problem for a lot of Republicans and Democrats are, you know, his ties to Russia. Um, This 
came out, and and the next morning you had first you had Sean Spicer at Trump's press conference Wednesday read a statement and just bash BuzzFeed in particular. But really, you know, if you're paying attention, you saw him conflate the BuzzFeed report with the CNN and New York Times reports and really try to dismiss all of them by painting them all with this brush. And then you had Trump come up and really do the exact same thing and very brazenly use the term fake news, right? The guy who leaned on and was propelled by the, all the stories you know, that are really propaganda, uh, inaccurate stuff passed off because it looks like news uh, and is easily shareable on Facebook, etc. You have this guy who benefited from fake news. That's why we have the term fake news at his own press conference yesterday, reappropriating the term and taking back this notion of fake news. Uh, he used that term seven times in an hour. And really, you know, he lashed out at a CNN reporter and said, you're fake news. What the worry is, is that because BuzzFeed may have gone a little bit too far, that they've allowed Trump, they've given Trump kind of a, an axe to sort of chop his way out of this avalanche of questions with. And I think that's problematic because there are still a lot of lingering questions. Well, let's, so let's hear from BuzzFeed on this. You know, Ben Smith, BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief, went on uh, Chuck Todd's MSNBC show, MTP Daily, on Wednesday. And uh, here's what he had to say about that, uh, about the rationale for, for publishing this document, which, you know, as BuzzFeed printed ab- ab- above it on, on their website, it contained information that they were unable to verify. I think there, there was an era when you, you would when you would be the gatekeeper for information, you would say to, and you would say to your audience, trust us, we're keeping things from you, we have lots of secrets we're not telling you, but you should trust us. I think you could say that was a good era, you could say that was a bad era, that is not the present day. First of all, like, do, does anyone, anyone agree with this? I mean, you know, we're at, we're at our best when we're, when we're debating, I think, but, but does anyone uh, agree with kind of this rationale that, that if there's, you know, just kind of like the media should not serve as a, as a gatekeeper between, you know, unverified information and the public? Well, I mean, I, I would say that whether we agree with it or not, it is just the the landscape That's in which we're true. working. Right. So, you know, we're all grappling with that and we're taking different approaches to it. I mean, we grapple with a, a very similar set of questions around uh, the WikiLeaks stuff. I mean, there, there wasn't necessarily the questions, despite the fact that the Clinton people were trying to generate questions about the authenticity of those documents and the information contained therein. There were questions, legitimate, I think, about whether we should run with them, whether we're being manipulated by the people who were releasing them, who were kind of trickling them out. Nonetheless, it's information that's sort of out there in the public sphere. That's already out there in the public sphere. This is the question about whether you're putting it into the public sphere. It's slightly different, but I think it does raise the same concerns. I mean, someone... I think Ben's rationale, I've dealt with him enough, would be like someone would eventually put this out there, whether it was them or not, and isn't it better to have them doing it in a way that is responsible and is framing it so that people, it draws readers' attention to what they know, you know, uh, uh, to, to the questions that they should be asking about it. Charlie? Well, as you know, I worked really closely with Ben when he was here, and, and you know, in my opinion, Ben is maybe the most talented uh, journalist I've ever worked with. So, you know, I can't... What about me, man? Well, yeah, okay. Ben's the second most talented journalist <laughs> oh, uh, thank you, thank I, you. I ever worked with. So I understand his reasoning. Um, and uh, But I think that is a very slippery slope 
to go down. We would never, under any circumstance, write stories about anything else where we had serious doubts about the material and hadn't verified any of it. I mean, he admitted as much in in the uh, note to his staff. And and everybody at this table knows that as political journalists, we uh, deal with these kinds of rumors and documents all the time during campaigns. And we know from experience that they're often not true. So to publish a document with so many questions, so many unanswered questions, simply undermines our credibility uh, as the media. And ultimately, it makes Donald Trump stronger. It inoculates him. It validates his argument to supporters. And so while I admire and actually adhere to Ben's thinking about uh, the end of the media's gatekeeping role, and I think that's a a tremendous thing. I think it's a great thing. Uh, But this isn't about gatekeeping. Uh, It's not a gatekeeping decision. We were not, the media was not trying to keep salacious details out of the discussion. Nobody was reporting it because no one could prove it. Nobody could verify it. Ultimately, it only hurts the pursuit of the truth when this stuff gets published by a media outlet because we all get blamed for it. You know, just we, we should not forget that the, what, what's becoming more and more clear by the day through these reports, through others, through the fact that Trump was receiving this briefing in the first place that has generated so much news is the fact that we've got unprecedented evidence of foreign intervention in the 2016 presidential election, in, in the election that has put our next president in office. And, and actually, Ken, I want to throw it back to you uh, just to, to end the segment here, because there, there's yet more evidence that it wasn't just Russia. We've got another former Soviet republic that's, uh, that's in the mix in terms of uh, trying, again, trying to affect the outcome of the American election last year. Yeah, we, we broke a story, uh, unfortunately, on the day after, the morning after the These things uh, happen. the Buzz, uh, BuzzFeed published that scoop. So thanks, Ben, for ruining my scoop. But we published a story about efforts by Ukrainian government officials to essentially undermine Trump, to meddle in the election on behalf of Hillary Clinton. And so this included things like... Um, a, a Ukrainian government agency publishing documents that implicated uh, uh, Trump's then campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and uh, the, the Ukrainian embassy working to un- working to like farm out research, opposition research, and to do opposition research and to connect with reporters on, uh, on Trump's connections to Russia. And we should say here, I mean, you're, you're talking about the big question, which was whether the Trump campaign knew about or coordinated with the Russian government on this stuff. Now, I'm not saying that the Ukrainian efforts are as concerted or as aggressive or as top down as the Russian efforts. But I can definitively answer the question, which is the DNC and Hillary's campaign and her allies did, in fact, work directly with the Ukrainian government on this stuff. And that's an explosive charge. And it's one that's going to it already is causing major problems for Ukraine because it is such an overt flouting of the conventions and the protocols of uh, of diplomacy. You don't you just don't do this type of stuff. That's why we're so up in arms about Russia. It's like in addition to the devious sort of cloak and dagger aspect of it, it is a violation of diplomatic norms. Um, and so here we have actual hard evidence of Ukraine coordinating with the Clinton campaign to undermine Donald Trump. That is something that they're going to have to answer for, and it's something that you know, frankly, in my mind, like should be getting more attention, but isn't because of this this uh, this BuzzFeed document. And you know, just just to wrap up, I mean, this is something that for us, we're like, oh my god, you know, foreign governments are intervening in our elections. Well, 
guess who has a long, long and storied history of intervening in foreign elections? The United States of America. In fact, we don't have to go that far back. We can, in fact, let's take the players that we just mentioned here. The U.S., like Ukrainian elections, as recently as 2014, certainly going back to the Orange Revolution elections and the, and the early aughts, we, they, those were proxy, those were direct proxy wars between the U.S. and Russia. Like the U.S. and Russia were squaring off in Ukrainian elections. Now the tables have turned. We have Russia and Ukraine squaring off in an American election. That's just incredible. And I think that's a good place to end our first segment and move into our next one. Data point number two is 15. That's the number of questions President-elect Trump took from the press on Wednesday morning in Trump Tower, all but four of which were Russia or fake news related, uh, in a news conference that also jammed in a huge announcement about how Trump will handle his business arrangements while in office. Nancy... Take us through this, like walk us through, if you can, the news <laughs> that emerged from this news conference. Man, there was so much news. So I'll just give you a quick laundry list and then we can talk about what it means. So basically, Trump did acknowledge that Russia had played a role in the election, uh, but he didn't want to say that he had had any contact with Russian officials personally. He uh, laid out his timeline of picking the next Supreme Court justice, which saying that he would, two weeks after the inaug- by two weeks after the inauguration, have a name for people. He made a promise on his timeline for repealing or replacing Obamacare. And then sort of the big whole point of the press conference was so he could announce how he would deal with his conflicts of interest and his own business. And there was a bunch of detailed news about that. And we'll we'll jump back Anything into else, though. Actually, <laughs> actually, well, there is there the, the wall. The I mean the wall, and also he named a VA secretary, which interestingly enough was an Obama appointee. So we'll so. jump back into all that in a moment. But but Eli, I mean, th- there's kind of like a, a a macro point about just all of this. The fact that all this was jammed into what about 55 minutes in kind of a circus-like setting in Trump Tower with all this other stuff that we just spent a couple amazing 15, 20 minutes talking about yeah. orbiting. Well, and, yeah, and the Russia stuff overwhelmed the press conference. Trump's whole strategy, and this is always the case every day, is to overwhelm the media to throw more out than anybody can really, you know, take in and download and understand and think about and really. Uh, ask questions about because there's always just too much stuff coming at you. So uh, the flood the zone approach uh, is nothing new. But yesterday was like you know really flooding the zone. I mean the fire hose was just turned on full blast. There may have you, you know if we're going to take that further, you could even say there was a second or a third fire hose. The other thing, I mean, I think it's important to go back and talk about the way that he was asked at the end. You know, you give Trump a two part question in the setting, he's just going to answer the one question that he likes, and that happened when. Or someone neither. Said, well, he, someone said, "What would you say to Putin?" And also, can you say definitively uh, that you, throughout your campaign, you and your allies had no direct contact with Russian or Russian intermediaries? Well, guess which question he chose to answer. What I'd say to Putin is, and then he tried to walk off the stage, and apparently he was asked this question again on his way to the elevators and he said no I haven't had any contact but it wasn't televised right? Oh, he did say that. Yeah he said that on the way to the elevator someone may have gotten tape but it was after all the networks cut away it was after the spectacle had ended and so that stays out of you know everybody's you know sort of big it wasn't a big moment in the press conference and I also think you know you're talking about this approach and all this other stuff um, the fact that I mean, this is a press conference, and you're sitting there watching on television and sitting in the room, all these reporters, right? There's hundreds of reporters in this room, and yet, if you're watching at home, you're hearing applause when Donald Trump says things, okay? And Annie Carney wrote a great piece on our site about this. She called it Trump's Greek Chorus, but he brings all his staff and all his family and all these people down from the offices 
and they're sitting there cheering. And if people are watching at home, it's all very confused, right? Because at a press conference, reporters don't react. Shouting. Reporters don't react, right? I mean, reporters might shout at Trump if he's shouting them down. That happened with Jim Acosta yesterday. But generally speaking, a press conference is just a, a, a calm interaction with the press. You don't have you know, a Greek chorus, people cheering at the White House in the briefing room. Uh, never really been done before. And this is just another thing to take note of when you look at the way Donald Trump does it. It's the staging and the theatrics and the sort of the show of it all. And, and, and it's yet another example. And Eli, you, you wrote uh, fairly trenchantly about this, I think this week, maybe last week, about like how Trump isn't, ben, isn't like sort of remolding himself to the to the confines the traditional confines of the presidency this is something the press conference press conference slash rally approach to uh to media interaction that he did on the campaign and it was off-putting then and i think you know liberals like say oh you're normalizing donald trump i think that is actually something that i have kind of gotten used to so i will say that that's sort of been normalized but we we still wonder like will he continue this what for from our perspectives as journalists who have been doing this for years and years and years is a pretty untraditional and like outrageous approach to things that is having people at his, having a cheering section at his press conference, obvious, uh, will he continue that as president? We got the answer this week, and it's yes. There's a lot less room in the White House briefing room for, for that sort of thing, though. There might be some space we'll just constraints. Just pipe, pipe in the applause <laughs> via speakers. That would, that would be something. White House, why would he have his press conference in the White House where he could have a Trump Tower, Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster, or any other fine Trump properties around the country or world? <laughs> no, we have a new sponsor for Nerdcast, sounds like. Nancy. Well, even just, I mean, he, he alluded to throughout the press conference a bunch of times just ways that it seems like he's totally comfortable approaching the presidency differently. He was asked at one point, when is he going to release his tax returns? And he completely dismissed it and said, you know what? The only people who care about me releasing my tax returns are you reporters, and then just moved on. And even the structure of the press conference was so unusual. You know, he came out and gave some questions, and then there was this weird middle part where a lawyer from Morgan & Lewis, a law firm, sort of ran through how he's going to deal with his business ties, and then he took more questions at the end. And uh, as Eli said, it was just flooding the zone, but it was also just a really weird structure. And the only traditional thing that, that you know you would associate with a press conference like this, the having the prop, the prop being the files on the table of all his alleged assets that he was putting into a blind trust, he didn't even really incorporate them. At the end, he sort of added as an afterthought, after the, the lawyer from uh, the, the law firm had uh, spoken, oh, and by the way, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't explain what these things are up here, but these are all the assets that I have that are going into the blind trust. And I'm thinking, like, if I'm at that press conference, I'm, like, running up to the <laughs> table to, like, start looking through them uh, because that's, of course, what we care about and what might be revealed by the release of his taxes. But yet another way in which he, like, even made a nod towards going more traditional and didn't do it. But I think what's – I'm, I'm glad we brought this up because this is one of those uh, things that just jumped out at me from the press conference. And you forget things that are astounding because there's so much happening in an hour. But – when he was asked about the tax returns, he said, you know, you're the only people who care about this stuff. And then when he was asked, you know, like, why do you think that? Why not? And he said, I won. I won. And that was his explanation, right? That is his reason. I mean, and, and we have seen this from people who want to enable and validate and make it easier for Donald Trump to continue to behave however he pleases. Uh, we've, from his people, we have heard a lot of this when they say, well, you know, he won. And so that... That erases all the questions that may have existed before because people don't care. And to some extent, it's true, right? To the extent that you can get away with 
some of the you know ridiculous scandals, the excess Hollywood t- to survive that and win. You know, we've we have sort of litigated the American people. Uh, even though it's a narrow margin, we can say that you know this guy won in spite of a lot of information being out there. So to some extent, it's true, and to another extent, you know that is something that we all have to be aware of because it's used um, to sort of you know intimidate people away from continuing to ask lingering questions, which is like. I won, it's over, move on, forget about it. Well, it raises an interesting political question going forward. If you look at the exit polls, Trump won, uh, especially in a lot of the states where it was close, Trump won uh, on the back of, of votes from people who disapproved of both him and Hillary Clinton. And so he doesn't have her as a foil. I mean, maybe he does a little bit, but he, he doesn't really have her as a foil anymore. It's not a one-on-one. He's just up there now on his own. Now he's maybe trying to turn the media into into a foil that he can position himself against but uh he he may have won but but you know things are a little different now and they will be different going forward one more untraditional thing that he did at the press conference that i'll throw out by using a data point and that data point is one that is the number of seats that were reserved for a specific member of the press by the RNC folks, logistics folks who put on the press conference before the press conference, the outlet for which it was reserved, Breitbart News, the reporter uh, who sat in that seat, Matt Boyle, love Matt Boyle, but the question that he asked might show why they might be inclined to reserve a seat for him. He asked a question about why the media is something to the effect of like why the me- the problems with the media and what, what would you recommend you for the media? And then of course Trump was happy to seize on that question and he said that he would. Uh, he wants people with more honor, I think, or integrity, he, moral compasses. And he moral and, and he talked. That's when he talked about fake news. I mean, to a guy from what many would say was one of the leading uh, purveyors of fake news throughout this campaign, but a pro-Trump I mean, outlet right, that that right, you can see right. that wouldn't necessarily I mean. Yeah, sure. White Houses and presidents and you know members of Congress, they all have their favorites in the press and they play them in subtle ways. The the overt nothing way, subtle about this. The overt way in which he did it is yet another way that this was out of the ordinary. Nancy, I just want to go back to something you said, Scott, about how he doesn't have you know as huge of a margin now politically that he did when he had Hillary Clinton as the foil. And I think that'll be something to really watch in the coming weeks because so far in his transition, he just keeps on these thank you rallies. And even at the press conference yesterday, he keeps reliving like the glory of the election and the lead up to the election and like the counties he won and just retelling that story and being really divisive, sort of keeping, you know, bashing the media and bashing people who didn't support him. And he even took a shot at him. Lindsey Graham. Right. Yeah. And so at some point, maybe in the inauguration, maybe at some point he's going to have to uh, stand up and sort of be the president for all of America. And that'll be an interesting thing to see if at some point he tries to give a more unifying speech. Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, the press conference was really interesting for all these reasons. Let's let's take a step out of the the trap that we just talked about that that Trump and his operation has set for everyone, and actually talk about now the the impact of some of this news that 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 came out on his business ties, uh, especially. Let's start with that because, as we mentioned, that took up a, a big kind of intermission in the middle of the press conference where we had. Uh, the, this attorney kind of step up and and read uh, a long list of steps that uh, that that the president elect was taking uh, to supposedly remove conflicts of interest. Now, whether or not that's actually the case, I think is uh, that was certainly not 
Politico's interpretation in our story out of that. But Nancy, what what happened here? So the big takeaway is that he's not divesting from his company, which is what all of these good government and ethics people want him to do. The details of what he said he would do is that he's going to turn over the company to his two oldest sons. He said he wouldn't do any new foreign deals with companies or individuals through during his presidency. He did say he would do domestic deals, though, and that he would appoint this ethics advisor to approve them. And then he also... Um, he said that if there were any foreign uh, payments to his hotels, that he would he would essentially transfer the profits from those payments to the U.S. Treasury. And as anyone knows, as, as the husband of a small business owner knows, profits is like a very fungible term that can be easily manipulated so that you, if you want to show profits, you could show a lot of profits. If you don't want to show profits, you don't have to show profits. You could show losses. But I think good government people and ethics people, even the head of the Office of Government Ethics, which is this really staid, nonpartisan uh, agency, really went after Trump after the press conference, just saying that this is not what we would want to see you do. You should divest. You should put your assets in a blind trust. This is not enough of a separation. I think this is part of the typical of the Trump approach, really, is that, you know, the visual, you know how he had all those papers there that he sort of obliquely referenced at the end? He said, well, this is all my business stuff. And we're going to, I mean, it was like to make a show. He had the attorney come up and she read uh, a lot of legalese, but mixed in with the legalese was a lot of like praising of Trump and how great it was and how honored she was and how you know, there will be no conflicts of interest. And, and really, it was nonsense because people who, you know, she was reading a script and, and people who, like you say, uh, focus on this and know the meat and potatoes of, you know, ethics conflicts and the emoluments clause, all these things are looking at this and scratching their heads and saying, this is ridiculous. What he's tra- talking about will have no effect. But what Trump recognizes is that most of that is over the heads of, you know, the people. Trump's audience Trump doesn't care about the people who are going to raise the red flags because thus far in his political career, he has seen people do that. He has seen fact checkers come along. He has seen all these people and he's still like nothing has stopped him. And so I think, you know, what, what the, the commonality here and in a lot of other things is like Trump doesn't care if the policy doesn't really align with the politics because it's all about the politics. It's, it's all about the messaging. And he's a great messenger and marketer. It's been the story of his entire career. And so with this, you bring a lawyer out, you do this little interlude, you pile up some documents, you, you know, you, you speak in these broad terms that people can understand. And I think the, the bet, the calculation is that, you know, all the other stuff, the articles that quote all these people saying this is sort of toothless and, and doesn't really mean anything, his bet is like that's not going to break through nearly as much as Donald Trump at a press conference putting on this show. Yeah, let's and you know there there was there were a few things where where the politics and the policy do align for Trump and the Republican Party that that he brought up. You know, appointing a uh, or nominating I should say a Supreme Court justice within a couple weeks of um, of getting inaugurated. That's something that the GOP is absolutely looking for and really raring to go on in the Senate to, to get a new justice confirmed. But let's also talk about uh, Obamacare and and you know the, the number that I took out of that was zero when he brought up Obamacare. <laughs> and that's essentially the amount of time that Donald Trump, zero seconds basically, he said would be great. Uh, the amount of time between uh, repealing Obamacare and replacing it with a new Republican health plan, which as of this moment does not exist yet. The you know the the full provisions for replacing it do are not written yet. So you know Nancy, I mean how how is that going to play on the Hill because and in Congress because that's you know the 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 politics there are obvious. He he wants to 
show the American people is like, you elected me and I'm doing stuff immediately. But in terms of figuring out the policy, we know that these things take some time. Yeah, he really screwed over uh, just Republicans on the Hill by making that sort of promise because even if they move quickly, even if they all agree on a plan to replace Obamacare, which they don't, it will still take you know, several months. And that's just the way that the process is set up on the Hill. And so just to, you know, they've started this budget process called reconciliation. The Senate took the first step last night. The House has to vote on it tomorrow. There's then another deadline in January 27th for them to go about doing this. But that just will deal with certain aspects of Obamacare, not sort of replacing the whole thing. And to replace the whole thing, you have to get Democrats on board. And you also have to coalesce around a plan, which Republicans have yet to do. And so this is really like a multi-month process. And Trump just put a timeline out there that there is no way Republicans can meet. Especially since we've already seen you reference that like, they might need some Democrats. The reason they would need Democrats is because they're not going to get all the Republicans. You already see fissures in the, in the House Republican conference, certainly even a little bit in the Senate Republican conference. You saw Rand Paul vote no on this uh, on this uh, sort repealing of parliamentary, Obama, yeah, but, uh, a bit of parliamentary maneuvering necessary to sort of proceed, and he's voting no because of concerns that GOP leaders have not committed to a plan to replace the Affordable Care Act. Now he is the he he has a plan of his own that he has suggested that Trump has expressed support for. Well, that's not the plan that the party leadership and Mitch McConnell want. And likewise, in the House, Paul Ryan points out, oh, we've had a plan on our website for some time. That's not the plan that Trump wants. And there are conservative members of his conference who don't want that. And we've already seen that despite the fact that Republicans have control of of, uh, all three, you know, both both chambers and the White House, that there is going to be that they're not necessarily there's not necessarily hegemony. We saw that with the Office of Congressional Ethics, where a rogue faction within the House Republican Conference took this vote behind closed doors to essentially gut this this ethics agency, and then the party, the, which the party leadership didn't want, and then the party leadership sort of forced them to walk back. But this is not looking like you know the, the what I think of as the the, the most well oiled sort of um, single party control apparatus that I've seen in my time was the Bush the first term Bush George W. Bush administration where they just had the members like marching in lockstep behind Hastert and Lot and they were ramming stuff through. This is not that. The Republicans on the Hill are really excited about this opportunity, right? They're trying to make sure they get along. They want to pluck the low-hanging fruit first and and do some big things because they have this amazing opportunity of majorities and, and a friendly person they think in the White House. Obamacare is supposed to be one of those things, and yet that is some heavy, low-hanging fruit, right? That is a complicated thing. And this is a great instance, maybe even a better example, of where the realities of politics for Trump are completely misaligned with the you know, what needs to happen on policy. And a lot of Republicans understand that, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and come up with a replacement in an hour because the Democrats now will even admit we did this too quickly because we were trying to get this bill through. And that's what all the pro- where all the problems come from. And that's why we took a beating at the polls because of it. And so I think Trump needs, someone needs to sit Trump down and tell him this. The one positive thing they have going for him is with his bully pulpit and his platform, as much as he can screw things up and set expectations the wrong way, he can also use that megaphone to come back and set expectations and lower them a little bit. And the Democrats took uh, more than a year to pass Obamacare, and it's Obama's first legislative priority. So if you're expecting something within yeah. a week, 
I think you're going to be sorely disappointed. Or an hour, as he said yesterday. I mean, Nancy, it's just last laughable. Word. Well, also, just broadly, healthcare is such a hard thing to start as your first legislative thing. You know, it tripped up Hillary Clinton when she was first lady. You know, the Democrats ended up losing the House in 2010 following the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you know, it's just a really – the politics of health care usually don't work for whatever party tackles it because so many people want health care and the trade-offs are really hard to push through. I thought there was a really telling quote in the New York Times the other day that healthcare lobbyists who are paid professionals to keep track of all this stuff are shocked at how quickly things are moving and, are, and feel like they don't have a handle on it. Um, and I think, you know, I think that pretty much says it all. All right, data point number three, and it's a double data point suggested by Nancy, 11 to 10. That's the partisan split on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where Trump's Secretary of State designate Rex Tillerson faced tough questioning from senators, including Republican Marco Rubio on Wednesday. So, Nancy, what in particular did Tillerson have trouble with on Wednesday, and what does this mean for the the putting together of Trump's cabinet? So we had a couple of different problems. Um, first off, just in terms of optics, he appeared rattled and annoyed at a few different times. It seemed like he wasn't used to being grilled super aggressively by people. Um, and then, he, you know, he differed from Trump on a bunch of different policy areas. He, for instance, said that he would back the TPP, which Trump has said he wouldn't do. And then third, you know, he really evaded and didn't answer a ton of questions that senators wanted, particularly Senator Rubio. And he really pissed Rubio off. You know, he wouldn't uh, answer questions really about human rights abuses, about Putin. Uh, and that really made Rubio angry. And it seems like it's hard to tell if Rubio is actually going to support him. Little Marco's revenge. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, though, that Rubio wouldn't. I mean, one option that he'll have is, you know, uh, to vote for him in committee and then vote against him on the floor. But I think the larger point here is how bad Tillerson was. I mean, it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, he wet his pants bad, but it was pretty bad. It would be he pretty was, bad. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was pretty shaky out there. He clearly uh, did not inspire confidence. He angered Rubio. And you can tell from some of the other Republican senators' remarks that it was not a home run that they were disappointed in him, whether it was because he wasn't appropriately prepped for it or whether it was just because, you know, hey, he's the head of ExxonMobil. I mean, to me, there was a real quality of like Smithers. I want that ignoramus dismissed immediately, (laughs) you know, to him. Like he's just not used to what he's not about to answer questions he doesn't want to. You know, telling the senators to respect his privacy on tax returns, he told them, I hope you'll respect my privacy. I mean, he's going to be secretary of state. I mean, all of these things signal that this is an individual who's not accustomed to that kind of scrutiny, and he doesn't appreciate it either. And on the substantive merits, his answers were not good either. Uh, You know, he couldn't even find an answer, couldn't figure out a way to denounce uh, Russian action in Syria, of all places. So to me, it was not not enough to to sink his his uh, his appointment, but it was pretty bad. And yeah, once again, Russia kind of rearing up in all sorts of different areas, right, Ken? Yeah, I mean, this is... This is sort of becoming a little bit of a, a proxy battle for uh, between Trump and the Capitol Hill hawks who have long dictated the foreign policy of the Republican Party. Rubio is at the leading guard of this right now. And 
you know, I do think, as Charlie suggested, that he might be putting himself in a little bit of a tough position and that he doesn't want to buck, not not necessarily Trump. True, he doesn't want to buck Trump. He doesn't want to create an unnecessary rift with his already rift. I should say he doesn't want to widen a rift with his already a rift. But he also doesn't want to flout uh, Mitch McConnell's authority. I think that's going to put him in a tough spot. But even if Tillerson does go through, we see just this is just a first the first battle when I, I see is like a real tug of war that's going to happen between Trump and John McCain and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and maybe Tom Cotton on not just Russia, but some of these other areas where Trump was either Russia is a unique situation where he's sort of like more appeasing of, of a traditional foe, but in other places where he's more non-interventionist and John McCain entering what everyone expects would be his last term is has shown a willingness to buck his party and a president of his own party in the past. I think that he is gonna he is gonna be a real potential thorn in Trump's side on Russia and Rubio, showing already that he too could be. Though I agree with Charlie that he he may end up trying to split the difference and find a way to support uh, to give if there is a if there is an issue with uh, Tillerson having enough votes to give a, give his vote, um, but then but then withhold it in a, in a place where they have sufficient votes to pass. Well, it's just remarkable to me that, you know, Tillerson even at one point said that he hadn't even talked to Trump about Russian policy. And this was something that also came up in, in John Kelly, the yeah. DHS nominee's hearing. He was asked about immigration by, I think, uh, Kamala Harris. Right. And he said that he hadn't had a chance to discuss immigration enforcement with, with Trump, and so he couldn't answer questions. Right. And Tillerson just said that they had broadly talked about world affairs, but, like, hadn't gotten into those specifics. And it's remarkable to me that out of all of the teams of people that they had prepping people, you know, people from the RNC are involved. They have these Sherpas that are guiding people through the confirmation hearings. Like, A, why wouldn't you prep the nominee for that kind of question? And B, why hasn't the nominee had a discussion with Trump Plausible about this? Plausible deniability. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah. And so now this is, uh, in terms of, we started off with a data point of 11 and 10, right? Tillerson needs to win a majority of votes on, on the Foreign Relations Committee to advance, even just to get a wider vote in, in the Senate, right? So, I mean, Rubio seems to be wavering, or are there, are there any other kind of, are there any Democrats who could cross over on, on that panel? Are there, you know, what, what's happening here? Well, I don't think Democrats will necessarily cross over, and he could go to a floor committee vote, right? Charlie, without necessarily like it still could be voted on. His nomination could still be voted on by the Senate without getting oh. the committee vote. It would just go. It would just say that he wasn't necessarily recommended. I see. Um, Burgess Everett, one of our Senate reporters, wrote a really good story on the Tillerson hearing that kind of lays out that process. And so, uh, you know, that would be terrible optics for uh, one of Trump's most high profile nominees. But that's certainly the case. And at the broadest level, I, I think what colors all of this and people should keep in mind is that no senator, even even the opposing party, but certainly the, the, the party of the president, no senator wants to buck an incoming president at the height of their popularity and power. Not that Donald Trump's popularity numbers are great, but he is still the president-elect. Uh, he still won a majority of his party votes. And there's also the, the, the Senate tradition. You want to defer to an incoming president, regardless of the party, to enable them to put their choices. They were elected by the American people. You want to defer to them in if in all cases you can. And I don't think that as bad as Tillerson was, I, I think, I don't think there was anything there that will prove fatal to his uh, appointment. 
I do think it's interesting, you know, if you go back and look, the cabinet nominations are a really good proxy for just how partisanship has really taken over in Washington. From Jimmy Carter through uh, Bill Clinton, there were only four cabinet nominees who even got more than 20 no votes in the Senate. And then there were five under George W. Bush, 10 under Obama. There might not be a single Trump cabinet appointee who gets less than 20 no votes. Maybe James Mattis, who, you know, a respected former general who's up for secretary of defense. Maybe that's a possibility. Or but, Elaine Chow at her hearing yesterday oh, that's for a good transportation. Point. Yeah. And she's very well liked by both sides of the aisle. And that hearing was smooth sailing. But, but you know, point being, you know, Tillerson, it's not like Tillerson is going to have huge numbers of Democrats to draw on. Whereas, you know, a, a, a nominee who... Uh, in the past, who attracted the ire of a particular senator, uh, wasn't something that was traditionally a problem. Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to, none of these nominees are going to get voted down. The real question is whether there's enough sort of hue and cry around one of them for them to be withdrawn before there's even a vote. And, and, you know, I don't really see that. I mean, Tillerson, like, is potentially the biggest risk, and we just talked about that he's likely to be uh, confirmed. So, you know, there's only been nine cabinet nominees in U.S. history who've been defeated in committee or Senate votes. Another 12 have been withdrawn in the face of strong opposition. The last time someone was defeated outright was 89, when former Senator John Tower, who was H.W. Bush's pick for defense secretary, went down in a party-line vote in a Democrat-majority Senate. So that ain't happening this time. Now, let's bring up another number uh, quickly to think about three. And now we talked last week about how packed these cabinet hearings were were getting. Uh, and now we're seeing that several of them have been postponed. Nancy, can you can you walk us through uh, who those are and what they have in common? Sure. And so the three that have been postponed, um, two to next week, it's Wilbur Ross for Commerce Secretary, Betsy DeVos for the Secretary of Education, and then uh, Pudster for uh, Labor Pick. Pudster's has been sort of delayed indefinitely, probably until February. I think that may come from some very critical articles that have been running, including one on Politico by Marianne Levine about how he uh, faced major domestic uh, violence charges when he went through a divorce. And so he's getting a lot of bad press. So that one has been put off. The other two, though, were postponed because both DeVos and Ross are billionaires. Uh, They have tons of money. And there's just been a little holdup with the uh, Office of Government Ethics in coming to arrangements about how they're going to do their ethics agreements and how they're just going to deal with their vast financial holdings. You know, another issue with the the scheduling here and the pace is uh, that some of the nominees have yet to submit that the require the requisite paperwork to the Office of Government Ethics to be for this office to be able to this independent quasi independent office to be able to complete its ethics reviews. And we saw a sort of remarkable we saw two remarkable things from this office uh, in the past week, which is first that uh, they wrote a letter to Congress expressing great concern about the uh, potentially unknown or unresolved issues uh, related to some of the, the, the financial holdings and finances of some of the uh, Trump nominees. That is, is rather rare for something like that to go public. We also saw the chief of this office come out after Trump's press conference and say that the steps that he laid out to avoid conflicts of interest are un- inadequate. So we see this 
usually sleepy office kind of becoming a little bit of a, a flashpoint here in the Trump administration. And, you know, I think Democrats are, are looking at this, hopefully, and, and thinking that, wow, this is potentially one agency that's willing to stand up to Trump and his administration. But the actual effect of it, I think, is far from clear. Charlie? I think uh, if Democrats choose to circle their wagons uh, because they want to take down at least one of uh, the Trump administration nominees to send a message to Donald Trump, and uh, obviously there's lots of interest in taking down many of their nominees on the left. Interest, but, but, but lack of Interest, but <laughs> lack, of, lack of votes. Uh, I, I tend to think that it's puzzler uh, at this point right now. I mean, Ross and DeVos, obviously very complicated finances, but... I think that when you take a look at the narrative surrounding Puzder, it's, it's of a different nature. And once you have uh, claims of domestic abuse thrown into the mix, it becomes uh, a very messy affair that I think the administration will want to uh, steer clear of, in particular now with the story that, that we just wrote, that Marianne Levine wrote about uh, not only were these claims of domestic violence Uh, swirling around. Now, it turns out that an ex-wife appeared on uh, the Oprah Winfrey show in disguise, leveling abuse claims about a future possible cabinet secretary. So uh, that is a nomination, I think, to keep an eye on going forward. That might be a little bit uh, in jeopardy. All right. That's a great place to wrap up. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Nancy. See you later. Thank you, Ken. Hey, fun time as always. And thank you, Eli. Thanks, Scott. And thank you to our listeners. Remember, please send in your questions, if you have them, to nerdcast at politico.com. Please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and subscribe while you're at it. And then also a huge thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator Bill Cookman, and nerdcast researcher and Politico producer Zach Montalaro. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>